Welcome to the Her Story Matters podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Allen, and I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Okay, so so Erica Bentley, RN, MBA, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to talk to you. I'm actually really glad that we haven't talked before this because 99% of the time that I have like an introductory call with someone, I'm like, I wish we were recording this. <laughs> um, so we get to like get to know everything about each other while being recorded. <laughs> so that'll make for a really good podcast. Um, so First, could you just tell us a little bit about your background um, and and sort of your career trajectory up to this point? Sure. So, and Ashley, thank you for starting this podcast. This is great. Um, I'm Erica yeah. Bentley. I am a registered nurse, first and foremost. I am a corporate vice president at a very large healthcare company in the country. Uh, I'm also an Airbnb owner, and then I am a mother to two wonderful teenage boys. I'm also a business owner, so I coach nurses of all levels on career advancement and nurse leaders on high performance at that executive level, too. So I started, I actually started at Penn State University in engineering. This is back in the 90s. So um, I didn't really love it, but I also don't think that we should be expecting 17 and 18 year olds to know what they want to do with their lives either. (laughs) So at the time, if you were a girl in high school and you were good at math and science, like there was a good chance they were going to recommend you go into engineering. So that's what I did. Um, Ultimately, I was looking for maybe a more purpose driven type um, career. I didn't really know what that was, but I just wanted to be compelled and feel like I was giving something directly back. And nursing had never really been on my radar. So I took a year off and I just started exploring things and learning more about careers out there, what it would take to um, become something. And so I decided to go back to nursing school. Um, I ended up going to Howard County Community College in Columbia, Maryland. And you're going to notice a lot of um, ROI driven decisions in my career. So I was working office and temp jobs. I could not afford to take out $50,000 in student loans. And community college was affordable. It had a great reputation as a community college and a nursing school. So I went back there working about part-time or three-quarters time. Luckily, I didn't have any children yet. And I became a registered nurse at that point. So it was great. I um, enjoyed the school. It was wonderful training. Knew I would at some point go back to school, but this was enough to get me started in the career. Mm -hmm. And so when it came to my first nursing job, I became an ER nurse. And I say that kind of funny because at the time I was, it was really scary. And I see that in my career. I've made a career out of facing insecurities and facing fears. I just think pushing myself, once you do it the first time, you you just gain more confidence and you feel like such a a sense of satisfaction once you've done it. And I remember, and actually I still know the person who was my first nurse manager who hired me. And she'll say that she hired me when I was baby nurse. And so (laughs) I, um, I, I just get there into the ER to work and they had a great training program. And I'm just thinking like, who do you think you are? Like, do you really think you have the personality (laughs) to do this job? Do you really think you have the skill to do this job? Um, And you look around and you realize that not all the nurses are the same. Like there's definitely a demeanor to being a nurse in certain specialty areas, but they all have different skill sets and strengths and personalities. And so I really enjoyed it. It it was a great experience in my career, but that was sort of that first, um, that first sense of like, what did I do? And am I really the right person for this? And Mm -hmm. so I think the more you do it, the more you get used to it. I was also a home care nurse at one point. Um, and I actually really enjoyed that. If I were ever to go back to direct care, I think it would be in home care nursing because I just mm-hmm. I just enjoy people welcoming me into their home and hearing their stories and actually seeing how they live and how that connects to what happens when they show up in the hospital. Um, and you really start to see the challenges that they face in their everyday life um, and yeah. why we may have educated them a million times about their health. And yet it's these other barriers that prevent them from actually putting it into place. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my nursing career, at least getting up to being an RN. And at some point I just decided, you know, I feel like I could give back more um, if I advanced my career, like I could affect more change. I could, I have more to offer. 
And I always was an ambitious person, even though I did take a little detour in my college career. And mm -hmm. I just decided I really felt like I should become a manager and I'm going to figure out how to do that. And so that happened. I got my first manager job. Um, it was scary. Luckily, they offered some sort of like manager coaching and all that. So they didn't mm -hmm. just put you out there. Um, yeah. And that's also where I first fell in love with coaching, just working with someone who was there to help make you better and help you realize like, okay, you're going to make some missteps, but here's how you would do it differently next time. Here's how you really tap into the people that you're managing, because that's the other thing. Oftentimes when you become a manager, it's because you were good at your job and then they, you, they need to train you not to be so self-focused and to focus on everybody else. So I get this first manager job. It was, it was great. You know, it was a really good learning experience. I don't know if I'm cut out to be like, a nurse manager on a floor, so to speak. Like that's a really intense and really responsible job. Um, so I don't know if that's generally like would be my career trajectory. Um, and then I don't know, I can talk about how I went from director to vice president and all that. That kind of wraps into some of my life story too around, you know, starting out with my family. So I don't know, do you want me to go there? Yeah, I just, I think I want to say before we go there, cause I absolutely want to go there. Um, it's amazing the similarities between our stories. And I think like a huge part of the reason that I wanted to start this podcast is because I wish that there had been a platform that I could listen to women who were in positions that I wanted to be in and sort of figure out, like connect the dots, like how did they get there? Um, mm -hmm. And so it's amazing to me. I think it's, I I do this to myself where I'm like, I must be the only one who did a two-year program or, um, you know, made these decisions that I made. And, and then you have conversations with people and it's like, no, Ashley, you're not as <laughs> unique or isolated as you think you are. Um, so very similarly, I started out at James Madison University. Um, I'm a first-generation college student. And so it meant everything for my parents, I feel like, for me to go to a four-year college. Um, but that being said, I was also paying for it. <laughs> so I just, I got to JMU and I was just completely, uh, I had like, I'll say a meltdown, like once it finally hit me and I could really wrap my head around the debt that I was incurring and the fact that I wasn't even going to know whether I got into the school of nursing until my third year. <laughs> wait a second, that's not computing. Yeah. And I knew there was Bon Secours, um, where actually a lot of my friends who were older than me, who went to Virginia Tech or other schools, and then they were like, actually, I don't want to be a teacher. I want to be a nurse, would choose Bon Secours um, as as their, their second step school that they were going to. And so I was like, you know what, instead of doing that, how about I just go do that now? Because to your point about ROI, I was like, and they'll pay it back if I work there for two years. And I knew I wanted to be an NP and I knew I had big dreams. And to me, that was a no brainer. It was devastating to my parents, of course, that I had worked so hard to get into a good mm -hmm. school. And, you know, I did the IB program and all this. And then here I was at a community college, which it's not, mm -hmm. but a two-year program. And so that was a huge inflection point for me. And it took me, I think, up until now, like the fact that I'm at Cornell getting this MBA to like finally let go of that. I think in your early mm -hmm. 20s, just in your 20s in general, the question at social events is always, oh, where did you go to college? Mm -hmm. And I always felt like I had to explain that part. And it's like mm -hmm. so ridiculous, right? Like I went to UVA for my master's. I'm at Cornell. Like who cares where I got my nursing <laughs> degree? Um, clearly I've proven myself, but I just, I just wanted to add that because I think a lot of people probably do that to themselves. Um, and I think that program is a huge part of who I am today. And it's not something that I'm ashamed of at all. And I'm actually sad that I don't think Bon Secours even has that program anymore. It's just a four-year program, which is is good in terms of raising the standard. Um, but I got a lot of hands-on experience very early um, coming out of that program. So I just wanted to mention that. And then also um, the ER was the first place that I was a nurse as well. And it was in my hometown that I- I feel like I know the story very well. 
in my hometown that I grew up in, which is also like, you know, something out of a TV show, right? <laughs> which I, I can ask, never say. Is that? Uh, Mechanicsville. Okay, Virginia. Yeah. 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 All right. So um, that was, I mean, it's, it was just, uh, it was an experience. And like, kind of like you said, it's like, who do I think I am? And I actually cut out for this. I will say my caveat to ER nursing is that I do not think that anyone should be in the ER for their entire career. I think it would have certainly warped my personality at some point, probably more than it already did. Um, so I'm glad we both got out of there. <laughs> but yeah, I just I'll wanted share, to, to add that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll share like, you know, one of the things you're not supposed to tell people, but like I was an ER nurse and something happened and you know how sometimes words come out of your mouth and you really wish you could put them back in. Yes. And this was to a patient. It was nothing. It was nothing wrong. It was just a little bit callous. And that was when I realized, oh, Erica, maybe you should take a break from this. Like, maybe you're not <laughs> as compassionate as you used to be. But I totally hear you because when your parents have put everything into getting you into this great school, this big name, all that, and then you're like, hi, mom, I'm going to leave the four-year university that like you invested your life into getting me in. And I'm going to go to community college like that is <laughs> it was I definitely felt that for a while. Um, and I feel like for ambitious women, which I'm going to say we both are. And I talk about this, with my friends, sometimes and we're all in our late 30s into mid 40s, I'd say. And so you realize we all went forward like there was a plan we were supposed to follow from 15 on. You know, you go you get the right grades, you go to the right school. You, here's your career path. Here's what you do with your family. And then at some point, and it seems to happen between like 35 and 40 or so, like the plan up ends itself. And then you realize like, what am I, what am I doing? You know, like either this plan isn't working. I don't like the outcomes of this plan, but we talk about it all the time that like we were following the plan. We were doing what we were supposed to do. Um, on the other hand, once you start making choices for yourself and for your career, and hopefully you don't wait till 40 to make those choices, <laughs> everything is so much better. It's so much more fulfilling. You're passionate about it. But yeah, I definitely, I, I hear your story very well, very loud. And, yeah. and I have to say, yeah. I do love Bon Secours. I work there and it was a great mission-driven organization and something unlike anything else I had experienced in my career. Yeah, it was certainly a great foundation for my career and the network that I have there, I still feel like I have today, even people that I haven't seen for years. So, um, okay, so let's now dive into the the second half of your career, if you will, um, because I think, um, especially for my listeners, that's that's the, there's this mystique around like, well, how did you move from the bedside into leadership or, you know, into the second phase of your career? So interested to hear that part of your story too. Yes. And that's why your podcast is so important because I think the only thing I knew about advancing my career was like, you were a floor nurse, then you became nurse charge nurse and nurse manager. And that's the way you were supposed to go. And I knew that there were all these other things out there for nurses. Like they always tell you that the career has so much opportunity, but they don't mm -hmm. really tell you what that is. And probably because it's just so vast and it's a little overwhelming or how to get there. And so I knew that I didn't want to stay in hospital uh, and become a hospital leader. Like that just wasn't the place for me. I was very much inclined towards the business side of things. Um, sort of my career trajectory moving into the executive level also starts with my divorce. Um, and I put that out there and I'll talk about that. Um, I, I know a lot of women that I have, you know, we have stood side by side when you have to make that point to choose yourself and your children and leave an unhealthy relationship. And mm -hmm. I, that story also is all too common for us to not talk about it. And so honestly, I was at a point in my career, I knew if I wanted to feel secure, take care of myself and my children, I needed to have an exit strategy. And so I was a manager at the time and I thought, you know, I really feel like, again, I feel like I could perform more and do more. I think I have this greater body of skills. I don't really know what to do with it. And so I just, you know, go online, start searching, start learning about things. Um, and again, there's not a lot out there to know how different nurses have advanced their careers unless you build out that network and talk to people. And I started talking to a recruiter and this job as a director um, in population health came available. And so lo and behold, I, I got this job. I, she coached me. I interviewed well. 
Um, I think projecting confidence really helped and just like tapping into my ability. But it's not like I had amazing experience that directly tied to all this. You can find a way looking at your job to tie your skills and talents to what the job description is. And you really have to craft and learn that. But I get there in this job and of the peers who were at my level, I would say 90% of them were more experienced than me and they were more accomplished than me. They had their masters, they had experience in director level positions and in some of the parts of the industry. But on the other hand, like I was good at that job. And so if I had focused on what these perceived limitations were and not my confidence and my ability and my ability to adapt and learn, then I wouldn't have done well. I wouldn't have even gotten the job. And so I think, you know, people will come to me and they say, well, Erica, how did you get out of direct care nursing? How did you move your way up the ladder? And I do like them to know, like, one, this was a life-driven choice um, because mm -hmm. I, I think I would have done it eventually, but I knew that I needed something more in my life and this was going to be a clear path to that. But also, I mean, my first director job, again, 90% of the people were more accomplished than me on paper. Um, and they were exceptional women. There is nothing like... I, it was one of those things where, again, it's like, well, who do you think you are being there? Not that they said that, but that I would ask that of myself. And so I think what's really important about that job is I took a job that was still in healthcare. It was with an insurance payer. It was, I'd say, more in the, quote, business side of things because it was in population health. And I think always moving a little bit towards that side, if you do not want to be a hospital leader or a clinical leader, that's what you have to do. You have to find mm -hmm. that first job. Um, and put the effort and network into it to get that first step out of the clinical world. And it's a shame because I do think it can be very common for people in healthcare who aren't nurses to view their nurse peer at the same level, a director who is not a director of nursing, she just happens to be a nurse or a vice president. They oftentimes don't necessarily see the nurse as having the full breadth of capability and knowledge um, there's just a little, I don't want to say it's a stigma, but there's definitely a perception challenge there that we have to overcome. We shouldn't have to, but we do. Um, and sometimes I look at that and I say, okay, well, this person has, you know, went to a great college, similar VP, great contributor, like good leader, great contributor. And yet somehow I feel like I'm viewed not as experienced and skilled, but I have, you know, 10 or 15 years of clinical experience on top of that same thing. So that's just an interesting dynamic I see when I tell people about moving from clinical to the business side of things. That's why I tell them you have to find those jobs and you have to find ways to really build your skills outside of that. Um, and it's not easy. It's just an intentional thing that you have to do. I, I took another job for a year as a director um, in network management and insurance. Um, I had no experience in network management. Um, I had worked at an insurance company, so I knew a lot of things about it, but I hadn't done that job. And again, it was one where I was interviewing with the vice president. She, she liked what I brought, my style, my leadership style. She liked the knowledge I had. She was specifically looking for someone who had a little bit different experience. And so it's finding those areas of opportunity and finding people that are willing to take a chance on you and, and convincing them that you're worth it, that really take that leap. Um, and then after that, I moved into my first um, vice president role. And I'm in my second one now. Um, and wow. I will say also, and I see this with a lot of nurses who have advanced their careers, I specifically had two jobs with insurance companies. I was a mm -hmm. vice president in a health system in between. But insurance is a nice area for nurses to go and take their clinical skills and take their education and get experience and exposure to things that are more on the business side and then helps them tie that into their career. Not everyone wants to work at an insurance company, and there are vastly different areas of insurance. So sometimes it gets a, a bad perception. But mm -hmm. I would say it is expanding your network, finding those little bits of opportunity and going after them, and looking for particular parts of the industry that are going to accept you as a clinician and give you that opportunity to learn the business skills too. Yeah. That's amazing advice um, said so well. I feel like that is what I tell a lot of people who reach out to me as well. Um, one of the courses that I'm in in my MBA program right now is executive presence. I'm not sure if you mm -hmm. had to take a similar course I in your not. program, um, but you certainly have that. I'm working on it. I think um, 
of course, women struggle more with it. Mm -hmm. And I think also being a nurse did not help me cultivate executive presence. If anything, I think it did the opposite, which I really hope is changing. But at least for me, I was taught that there's a certain way that you handle the doctors when you call them to mm -hmm. basically get what you want for the patient, right? And, um, and that's just, oh my gosh, like it's so outdated. Like, you know, it's 2023. I really hope that that dynamic is changing. <laughs> um, so yeah. And, and totally resonate with what you said about, like, I think what you were saying is find your why your why was that you knew that you needed more because you were going through this major life change. And I think, knowing what your why is in the back of your mind makes projecting that confidence, even if it's not a hundred percent authentic at the time, it just makes it a little easier to sort of put on your alter ego and be like, no, I deserve this job. Cause the reality is that you do. I think we're our own worst enemies 99% of the time. Um, and also to your point, it's frustrating when you're on the other side of that first job and you're like, at least for me, I'm like, I literally know nothing more than I did a week ago. I just now have mm -hmm. this leadership position on my LinkedIn and now I'm getting blown up by people or like the day after I get into Cornell, all of a sudden I'm like worthy of a promotion. It's like, but wait a second, like nothing changed. It's so arbitrary. It's like, right. oh, that's how this works. Right. And also, uh, lastly, I'll just add to your point about being a clinician on the business side of things. I also have felt like that that is a hindrance at some points um, that maybe I'm not taken as seriously because I, but at the end of the day, I have more credentials. <laughs> I have yes. more degrees. I have more experience. And, um, and so, yeah. And then especially like after you've been through an MBA program, it's, mm -hmm. it's just kind of, it's ironic, sad, and hilarious all at the same time. I don't know what yeah. to say about it. I really hope my, my hope and dream is that some research comes out proving that clinician led organizations or startups, whatever it may be, actually return more value because mm -hmm. I believe that anecdotally, I don't know that there's any actual research or numbers out there or how that would even get done, but it would be a way for VCs or startups to invest more on the front end in terms of hiring instead of just going, obviously we should command a higher salary given that we had our salaries to begin with. And then now we have this extra skill set on top of it. And also before we jump into the next question, I would love your thoughts on that. Um, because I, I believe that salary um, coaching is, is part of what you offer in your business. And that is something that I have thought a lot about. And there aren't a lot of uh, resources out there online because there aren't a ton of NPs that have moved into leadership positions. And I know, of course, like Cornell publishes, this is what our average exiting salary is base salary or total comp for our program. And it's like, okay, but I came in making X. So how do yeah. I, how do I figure this out? And then also, you know, if somebody's a nurse, they're at a different level and it all seems very arbitrary when you go into these conversations with the recruiters that you're negotiating with. And I think having a strong stance on, nope, this is my background. This is what I've mm -hmm. made this is the extra investment that I've put into myself in terms of time and my own money. And this is what I expect on the back end of that. Um, so I will give you the floor for that one. <laughs> yeah. Salary negotiation makes so many people uncomfortable. Um, I mean, you know, I think it makes anyone uncomfortable. There's a little bit of a power dynamic thing there. Uh, I think a lot of companies are hearing the calls for pay equity and they are in pay transparency. And so they've set it up better. You know, so if you're, if you're interviewing with a large company, most of them online now will actually put salary ranges on their upper mm -hmm. level positions. And that's because certain states require them to list pay ranges. Mm -hmm. So 
it sometimes they just list it across the board. Some of the times they only list it for certain states. So that mm -hmm. helps. The other thing is organizations that have you interview or negotiating your salary with the hiring manager. That's a terrible way to go. You really should be negotiating your salary with the talent acquisition specialist or the onboarding mm -hmm. HR person, um, because that takes that little bit of personal and um, that discomfort out of it. Mm -hmm. I tell people, you know, one, do your research. It can be difficult to do because it's not well published what different salaries are. Some of our job titles, there are 15 different job titles for them. So you have to do a lot of work to find out what is a you know reasonable salary range. And it can vary by um, geography. And sometimes I find it varies like, quite vastly, particularly between the South and the Midwest compared to your coasts, of course. Mm -hmm. So also it helps if you have a career consultant, their job is to do some of that research for you and help you figure out what is a good range. Now, heading into the conversation, I think exactly how you put it is the way to have that conversation to say, and before you even negotiate the salary, I would ask them fairly long, at least when you get the offer, but sometimes even sooner in the interview process, because you don't want to waste anyone's time. What is the mm -hmm. salary range and what is the midpoint? Pretty much most mm -hmm. organizations, they base their salaries on a range and a midpoint. And so, you know, and I would go so far to say, and this is a little bit bold, that if they are not willing to share that information, then you may not want to work for them. And not mm -hmm. because it's just about the information, but it's indicative of a certain type of like old school culture. And what I have found and what most of my clients have found is that organizations are willing to offer that up now. The HR team's talent acquisition is willing to offer it up because no one wants to waste each other's time if they are $50,000, you know, out of the range for you. So... Mm -hmm. I push more and more to be a little bit like to look for signs of a progressive organization, because if you don't find it here in this area, you're probably going to find that there's some challenges in other areas, too, with their culture. I also say so that helps you have a starting point when they come back with um, an offer to you. I always say at least counter with 10 percent above, usually more. But depending where they fall in that range, either the range that we've researched or the range that they've told you, never take the first offer. Um, that, that's just solid advice there. I will also tell you to, you have to look at total compensation and people hear about this. It really does matter. Um, the little bits of benefits. So how much they match your 401k, how much the cost of your health insurance will be all these other aspects, PTO, everything that can add up to like tens of thousands of dollars a year. And mm -hmm. people don't put the effort into it. It does take a lot of work. It takes a lot of math. My last job, when I interviewed with them, and they were going through some org changes, so it was a challenge, but I was like very specific. I need to know what is the 401k match? When does it start? What's your PTO? What are the medical insurance premiums? And that one was like, they're, they're, they want, I want to know like how much my insurance is going to cost me every two weeks. I'm like, yes, because <laughs> if it's a $50 difference every know, two weeks, that's going to add yeah. up. <laughs> So you and people feel really uncomfortable, but they can end up leaving a lot of money on the table from that. So uh -huh. and especially as you move higher in your career, the compensation packages get there's just so many more facets of them between bonuses and other types of incentives. It behooves you to look at that and find out if I take this job, which the base salary is higher compared to this one with a lower base salary, there's still a chance that I'm leaving $40,000 on the table and don't realize it. That's so yes, great ask advice. for what the range yeah. is, do the research, a career consultant will help you do that research and then always counter and make it as you talked about, like this is a discussion on facts around my qualifications, my experience, what I have delivered to other companies, you know, how have I produced for them? It's not mm -hmm. an adversarial conversation. Um, the way they respond will tell you if you want to work for that company or not. Absolutely. That is such great advice. Um, and I myself even need to hear that. I will say too, too, that first, <laughs> that first job, that first leadership role that you take, I typically tell people that ask me about this sort of stuff that I think it's most likely an internal promotion. Um, you know, I'm hearing your story that it wasn't that you actually were looking outside of your organization. That one is actually internal. Yeah. That first okay. one was internal. Okay. Um, so I do think it's it's an easier route to go um, and you will most likely be mentored a little better as well in the role because you already have a network in that organization. 
I will be very transparent here and share that I did not get a raise, any bump in pay for that first internal promotion. And the reasoning behind that was because I was basically moved in a role into a role that was not slated for a clinician. Um, and so it was sort of like, okay, well, you want to build out this skill set. Well, do you a favor is almost how I felt like it was uh, portrayed to me again in hindsight. Yeah. I don't know, you know, but like um, it was because that launch, that was the launching pad to where I am now. It was the first out of the clinical role, like protected from seeing patients um, that, that I had. And that's a whole different conversation is that I also tell people make sure that the boundaries in terms of whether you will be seeing patients and what percentage of the time is very clearly defined. I mm -hmm. wish that uh, it wasn't that way because I miss seeing patients and I do wish that was a part of my current role because I think um, you said earlier that you knew you wanted to be in leadership because you wanted to, um, you knew that you could have a bigger impact and a bigger reach. And that is so true, but also starting to like work remotely and you're used to the super fulfilling job where you're seeing patients and feeling compassion and empathy and all these things. And, and you know, you're, you're having a much bigger ripple effect, but you're not seeing it, um, mm -hmm. is a struggle. But I also see that a lot of my friends who have roles where they are able to see patients, they get steamrolled. I'll just say it. Oh, they're yeah. doing, they're basically doing two jobs for the price of one. Right. And, um, you make a good point because like physician leader roles, they often still denote, like if you're going to be a physician leader, you still have 10% of patient care time or 20%. And you don't see that for nursing roles. I remember actually asking that at one job. It was like, could I like work I don't know, one day a month in the ER and not just to keep up my skills, but to actually feel like I'm tied to the work that we're producing. That was not apparently a normal thing to ask. And I know because I don't ever see it either. Um, and it wasn't possible, but I, I do think that is something that's important. And you also mentioned that, um, and this happens not just for nurses who become leaders, but nurses who take non-clinical type jobs. I find this, you know, when you're, when you're working in the hospital, you go in for your shift. And when you leave in general, like, things have gotten better. You've seen a patient do better. You've seen something. There's a sense of accomplishment. And then when you work in a job that's not directly patient care, you may not see like that you've generated an improvement in anything for a week, two weeks, because it's, it's just different. It's office work. It's pro project and program work. And a lot of nurses feel unsatisfied because they haven't learned how to reevaluate themselves. They're used to, mm -hmm. I go in 12, 12 hours later, I feel better, you know, Maybe you don't feel better. You're probably tired, but you know that you've made a difference and you don't necessarily feel that when you move out of the clinical space. And I hear that over and over again. They're like, I just don't know if I'm doing anything. And it's like, well, you are, but you have to measure it on a different scale. You said something there. Oh, about getting your first promotion in place. And that is true. It is easier to get your first promotion where you are. You know, it's just likely unless it's oversaturated. Sometimes there's no area for um, advancement, but you will be underpaid. So if you get that first promotion where you work, you do not stay there too long. I, I mean, I hate to say that because you do want to be loyal, but you will be underpaid. Most companies, unless they've made a real effort on their, um, their pay structure and how they manage compensation, are set up that way. Now, I have worked for an organization who actually really worked to make sure that people who stayed there for longer, that they rewarded them, that they didn't get fewer raises than the people who were coming in new. Um, that was amazing to see. I, I just thought it was fantastic. But um, you will probably be underpaid compared to your peers. If you leave in a year or two, you could probably command like 30% more, if not more. Mm -hmm. And they do tend to act like they're doing you a favor of giving you this. And yet they're giving you this work because they need someone and you're the qualified person to do it. So it is an mm -hmm. odd um, interaction. It's one of the reasons I tell people not to stay in a job for too long. You don't want to be a job popper, but on the other hand, you know, it isn't our parents, um, you know, it isn't our parents Absolutely. generation work yeah. where you stay for 40 years and they reward you with a pension at the end. It just doesn't <laughs> work that way. So don't, you need to be willing to look at opportunities out there and make the right decision for yourself. And then adding into that, that skill of salary negotiation, you are going to exponentially increase your pay and you shouldn't 
tell yourself that the next, like there isn't anything better out there. There are plenty of other great companies, great missions, great teams to work for. So just don't hold yourself back in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. Um, so another one of our similarities is that I was also an Airbnb host. Um, I sold my Airbnb about a year ago. And mm -hmm. so I just want to dive into your coaching business and your Airbnb. Um, if you could just give us a little overview of both and then mm -hmm. also just touch on how do you balance all of these aspects of your life, right? You have a high powered job. You have basically two businesses on top of that and you're raising your sons. And so uh, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in my MBA program, I thought it would be finance and accounting. And it's actually um, how to balance my life and how important it is to structure fun or structure downtime. And um, so would love to hear how you do that and, and any takeaways you have for us. Yeah. So, so the Airbnb, uh, luckily that one isn't too time consuming to manage. It's a condo. So it's not like there's any exterior maintenance to do. Mm. Um, and it's a place that's high demand. Um, I will say again, ROI driven decision. The reason I decided to buy a place at the beach is, you know, how people always say like, oh, I'd love to retire to the mountains. I'd love to retire to the beach. And then I thought, do I actually have to wait that long? Like if I do the math, could I afford something somewhere? And so I did, and I started looking, and yes, I could. And so I talked to the realtor. I said, how much could um, like Airbnb revenue pay for this? And so he actually understood the market, gave me a spreadsheet. We did the math. It was the greatest thing ever. Um, wow. And I also said, okay, I'm not going to buy something that I can't afford if for some reason I can't rent it. So mm -hmm. either there's all these fears when you make these big decisions. And my goal is always to just absorb as much information as I can, as much expert information. So I feel comfortable with them. And in fact, I waited two years from when I originally wanted to do it because there was some changes in my, um, in my work. And I didn't, I felt like it was too risky to make at that time. So mm. it wasn't like I just jumped into it, but it was a scary decision. And I just processed a lot of information and said, okay, if I put these on the paper, black and white, does this work for me? Mm -hmm. So the Airbnb doesn't take a ton of time to manage. Um, and of course I get to use it too. I don't know if I would have a second one. I asked someone about that because everyone talks about, you know, real estate investment as the path to wealth and all that. And I talked to someone who owns like three or four and she said, no, after you go past one, it's like a full-time job, you know, just don't do it. And I said, yeah, okay. that was, <laughs> that was actually the point just to jump in really quickly. That was the yeah. point I was at and I was, that was right when I decided to go back for my MBA. So I was either like, I want to scale this and get three houses or I'm, I want to sell it and move on and focus on my career because yeah. yes, it is a lot. And, but also with that, once you get the systems in place, it's, and as you know, it's very lucrative and um, yes. it's very tempting to just dive in. <laughs> it is. It is. You know, you mentioned it like putting structure in your life. And I think that is the key. Like, I don't love structure because I love freedom and opportunity and choices mm -hmm. and all this stuff. But I also recognize I am a person who needs structure in order to function well. Um, so I love to do lists and all that and planners. Mm -hmm. um, but putting structure around how the Airbnb is managed how I'm going to have this other business on the side, even within my own job, like what kind, what boundaries do I need to put in place so that the job doesn't overtake everything? You know, we, again, talking about decisions in life, I decided to go back for my MBA. I knew I have two kids. They're very young. I think one was in kindergarten and one was in second grade at the time. I, I'm a single mother now. I can't take a ton of money in loans. So and I can't, you know, a lot of people at the time were doing those um, weekend MBA executive courses that That's were made I'm for doing. working people. Yeah. yeah. And I just couldn't do that and go, and they were on site. There was a college or university local that had a great program. I couldn't go on site every single weekend with these two kids, nor could mm -hmm. I afford it. I probably could have afforded it if I made choices, but I didn't want to pay that much also. And so um, I ended up choosing an online program. It's not, you know, the best program in the world, but it was affordable. It taught me what I needed. And I also think as a, as a clinician and who wants to move into the business world, having an MBA or an MHA or an MPH automatically sets you apart. 
I mean, even compared to what I can be considered for in jobs compared to a nurse with the same experience who has an MSN is very different. I think they're just they're viewed differently and they're different curriculums. So I also knew I need this master's to move forward. It's pretty much required now. I mean, at any director level and above. And here are the constraints I have in my life. And so I said, okay, I think if I go to this program, I will learn enough about finance, business, um, accounting, all of that to still be able to apply it and be successful. But I also know I'm not going to like a big five school that's going to land me in one of the top consulting companies. And that's okay for me. So again, I just go back to like making the decisions that make sense for your life and those ROI driven decisions too. So the consulting business and kind of work-life balance. There is a quote out there and I, I misquote it all the time. And I actually don't know who to attribute it to, but it is that work will take as many hours as you give it to. By the way, if you can't mm. tell, I'm very casual. Um, <laughs> clearly it hasn't held me back. So I'm okay with that. I, I think this is just that like thing about being authentic and your yeah. people will find you. Yeah. So work will take as much time as you give it. And so I've often had peers who work 60 hour weeks, 80 hour weeks, and I'm not, and we're just as successful. And I will say, sometimes I think I've been more successful and it's because I'm not burning out the same way. Mm -hmm. Now, when there are times at work that I know I need to lean in, like there's a quarterly goal coming up for this big project. Yes. I'm working more than 40 hours then. Cause that's, that's my job, but mm -hmm. I try to keep those um, boundaries. I have also, I don't know if there's a tip or a trick to this, but in terms of finding jobs that are remote or mostly remote that allow me to flex my hours around some kids' school functions, other requirements in my life. I do not flex my work around my business though. Business is done off of work time, mm -hmm. but everything else, it's just always worked out for me. But I think that is also the result of putting those boundaries in place and knowing when to hold fast on them. And I think we we perceive that things won't be as flexible for us as they will be. I have made trade-offs. There was a time in my career where we went through a merger and my job moved to Ohio and I live in Maryland. And so I did have to fly there often um, to take that job. And it takes a toll. It's, you know, it's the flight is actually shorter than driving around DC, but nonetheless, it takes a toll. And so mm -hmm. I did that until I didn't have to anymore um, because I knew that was good for my career. So, but in general, I feel like the more you put those boundaries in place and the more you push against these old notions of what work has to look like, it will work out or you will find the things that are out there because you're actively trying for them. If you're just putting that as I would like to have this in a career, you're not actually making that a priority, then you're not going to find it or it's only going to be luck that you do. So I think my one advice then getting off of all that to, you know, working parents out there, particularly working mothers, they always say that they want to feel present for their kids or their family. And I ask them to define what that means. And they'll give me a definition and I'll tell them, well, tell me in the real world, like right now, at the end of the month, if you were to say you were present for your children, what would that mean? And I'll get much better examples. Like, for example, my son has a football game every Saturday afternoon and I want to go there and I want to not be checking email or be distracted by work. Okay. That's what we're going to work on. That's that first baby step. My goal has always been, I do run my business outside of work hours. I only take as many clients as reasonable for me. I'm not going to burn myself out. I'm no good to my job and I'm no good to my clients if I'm taking too many and that I make time to be fully present with my children. It's not all the time. It's not everything I would want it to be. Um, but they know there are times they can be with that. I'm with them where I am not distracted. And then they also know that there are times I'm multitasking and they just get used to it. I, I mean, honestly, as long as you are giving your kids dedicated time or your spouse or whoever, and that they're not always in like an afterthought, I should say afterthought, but they aren't always part of what you're juggling multitasking. Yeah. That's enough. You know, you learn how to give enough of yourself. And my kids actually, like, they ask about my job now. Now they're older, they're teenagers now, but they'll say like, oh, mom, is that meeting for work or is that for one of your clients? Or, you know, I'll say, they'll say, oh, did you get any more clients this week? Or, oh. you know, what do you do? At, what do you do at work? That's a fun one. What do you actually do at work? It's really hard to explain. So I, I think you have to set boundaries. You have to know when to push on them. You have to believe that 
the work world will accommodate you. Like it's not, yeah. it, we put more limitation on that than actual work does. And then you do have to make a point to turn off or just not multitask. And that is really hard for nurses to do. It is. It is. I think like the main thing that I'm hearing you say and what I love about your approach to life and your career is breaking things down. And I think I've been very successful at doing that as well. People will look from the outside and be like, oh, you have this podcast and you had this Airbnb and you're in an MBA program and you have this career and like, it's sort of like, how does she do it all? And I think people can't wrap their heads around it. And to me, it's like, mm -hmm. I just do it. I just figured it out. No one, no yeah. one gave me a key and said, this is how you start a podcast. I just got on Google and I tested it out and I've already <laughs> changed things like a million times because it's, as I'm doing it, it's evolving. And so I think it's part of it is just starting. Part of it is having boundaries for yourself, as you've mentioned, and systems in place to sort of like just demystify things is how I like to put it. Um, break it down into smaller problems. And I think coach can definitely help people with that. And so at the end, I want to make sure that we touch on how people can reach you. Obviously, I'll post this on LinkedIn. I'm not sure what other platforms you're on. Um, we can do that at the end. Did you so, ever um, yeah. have the moment? Like, I don't know if you've ever had this moment, but like when I first got my, I'm going to say my first director job, but also my first vice president job before I got there, I thought those people, like there was some magical secret about them that they knew and all of this. And then you get there and you realize, Oh wait, they're like, yes, they're there's people. skills and talents <laughs> that got, got you here, but yes, they're normal people. And so, and then you find out like people are looking up to you and you think, God, if they only knew. And so it's interesting because there are the people that that see you at this point in your career and they're like amazed and tell me the secret and help me figure it out, which I will not discount that. Like, yes, we all need mentors and coaches and guides in our life. And that's what we are all here to do for them. And then yeah. the people who have been with you along the way, they realized how many years it took. And they also know all the places you went up, down and lateral to get there. <laughs> so they actually know you as a, a real human. Um, <laughs> So it was just interesting. And in terms of like, you know, choosing your priorities, I had an employee tell me once it was something like you're juggling, you have to juggle all the balls, but you also have to know which ones are glass and which ones are you know plastic oh, or rubber. That. And that was a great visual for me too. That makes so much sense now. So I started like thinking about, okay. And it's part of high performance coaching too. You know, there's these different realms of your life. And, you know, for this 12 week session, we're going to focus on these three and we're going to get to whatever high performance is. It doesn't mean you're the best of the best and it doesn't mean you're the best of the best at everything. But right now these three matter and here's what we think it should look like. And then in a different part of your life, it's a different three things. So mm -hmm. I think also not holding ourselves to these unrealistic standards and knowing that it is a path to get there and um, it looks different all along the way really helps too with people understanding like what's their journey going to look like. Yeah. Definitely. I love that visual like metaphor of the glass and the plastic yeah. and the rubber. I will certainly yeah. be uh, ruminating on that. So <laughs> I think we've touched on this a bit, but this podcast and this platform is obviously about empowering women specifically. And I think that it's a little easy for us because we're in a male or sorry, a female dominated um, mm -hmm career nursing and it certainly changes when you go into business it's the complete opposite um and so but just specific advice that you have for women who may be facing similar challenges that you faced um would just love to hear what specifically for women um would you add to this conversation yeah um so i'll tell you a story i worked at this organization that was very um, traditional and mostly men in the C-suite or even the level below that. And I was, and I'm, I mean, I'm in my forties, but I still felt like I was viewed as very young, let alone being mm -hmm. a woman and being a nurse. So I was asked to join this one initiative and want to offer expertise and guidance on some certain things. And then when I got to the group, I realized, oh, there's not like a 
there's not like a real role and expectation for me here. This is all going to be done on like my influence and my ability to kind of convey and push people in the direction they need to do and convince people to listen to me, which is also really hard for women and nurses, I would say, because we're used to thinking there's a role and you have to achieve these things along the way. So I get there and I am, I was not prepared for that. And then one of the leaders who was the same level as me on the, you know, on the grading scale, he had more experience than me because he was older. I'll give him that. Um, he didn't know I was there or what I was going to offer. And I really hadn't communicated it yet because I didn't realize it was unclear. And he asked me if I could help with making the agenda and taking notes every week, uh. um, which was, it's a very important job, but they weren't paying me over $200,000 a year to do agendas and notes. Let's just say that. <laughs> so um, it is, it's one of those things just the, what you're there to do in your career can really vary. And you have to kind of, you have to assess the room like, okay, what's my role here? Am I here to influence? Am I here to direct? Am I here to just advise? You don't know. Um, mm -hmm. And now I have forgotten actually what your original question was. <laughs> Sorry. Advice specifically for women. And I think a story like that is fantastic because yeah. those, those small things that people overlook all the time, like mm -hmm. that's something that happens to women. And, and you um, think when yeah. you get to a certain point in your career, that's not going to happen. And it does. Mm. Like you just, I would have, I would have been flabbergasted if someone told me in 2022 that was going to happen. Right. And actually it was maybe 2020 that, that was going to happen. So yeah, I would say, you know, advice for moving your career along, getting out there is you do need to, what other people think of you is none of your business, so to speak. I mean, you do have to be aware of, you know, self-aware. How do you present? Are you communicating in a way that's effective with your audience? But most people are not judging you. There are people out there who judge and that's fine. That's them. Those are the people who are afraid to make the same decisions you are. And mm. you should, I saw this somewhere recently. You shouldn't be taking um, criticism from people you wouldn't ask for advice either. So I think a hard part for a lot of perfectionist type A ambitious women is they, they criticize themselves too much and they think that everyone is watching. And that's really not the truth. Most people, it's the same with networking. If you reach out to them, they actually want to support others. Like they, people want to help other people. Yeah. So I think that's the first thing is stop worrying what people are thinking, thinking of you. Um, don't be so self-conscious. The next thing I would say very tactically is network. You have to reach out, be unafraid to reach out to people and network with them and just not to ask for a job, just to learn about their career. The same thing we're doing here, learn about their organization. Um, there's not necessarily a point of networking when you do it, it just pays off in the longer term. And the other thing I would do is again, very tactically, but I do think not enough people do this is that you need to manage your career. You need to know where you want to go. You may not know where you want to go in five, 10 years, but at least in the short term. And one of the things we do in my program is we map out the different paths to get there because it's not always linear. And it's not just saying, oh, I want to reach this job title. It could be, I want to work in this part of the industry. I don't really care what the job title is. I just want to work in this part of the industry. I need to make a certain amount to support my family. And here's how I want to feel at the end of the day. So I think, you know, believing in yourself, projecting confidence, learning how to communicate that way, and then having that plan is just really important. And I think sometimes we leave our careers up to chance or hoping, this is the other myth, hoping that people will see something in us and promote us or give us the opportunity. Mm. That happens. And those people who do that are wonderful and they will, you will forever remember them in your career. But if that's all you're hoping for and waiting for, you're going to get more work assigned to you without a promotion and without more money. Like that is you, it's a conscious effort on your part. So know that you can't just sit and wait for people to see that in you and want to lift you up. The people that yeah. do that in your life are amazing, but they're not everybody. Yeah, that is, that is great advice. Um, one other thing that I'd like you to share before we wrap, um, 
Is there a key moment or a key experience that really shaped your mindset, contributed to your success? I know we've touched on your divorce, which was an inflection point for you. And I think for me, I'll just share two that um, that really drive me. One is very simple. I think just seeing, watching my mom go through a separation and divorce and thinking to myself as a little girl, I never want to be that vulnerable. I always want to be able mm -hmm. to take care of myself, that sort of thing. Um, and then the second, in terms of my career and, and why I'm so invested in um, at-home medical care is that my grandfather um, had congestive heart failure for years. He was a DNR. He ended up dying in the ER and being coded despite his wishes and despite the fact that he should have had palliative, probably should have been on hospice mm -hmm. at home and could have just had a completely different experience. Um, and it's a long detailed story. I won't get into it because I want to hear, um, hear yours, but also just, you know, that's sort of what I'm looking for the conversation to go. Mm -hmm. I think there's probably two. One is that first job as an ER nurse. Cause that's the first time I really said, um, I'm going to, you know, I don't know if they still say this in nursing school, but they used to say every nurse should go through two years of med surge nursing. You know, like that was just, oh, yeah. you know, that's, and actually now that I'm, now that I'm more experienced, I do see the value in that. But at the time I was like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to, I'm not going to follow the status quo. Same, same. I was like, yeah, <laughs> no, not me, not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now maybe those time management skills would have been kind of helpful, but at the time now. So that was the, that was my first, you know, I'm going to, challenge the status quo. I'm going to face my insecurities and fears. I'm going to go into this field of nursing where I don't feel like maybe I'm the best person, but I bet I can. And so that was kind of that first like key defining moment because I did okay. And I just got to see like the ER is made up of so many amazing nurses with different strengths who did the job really well, but they all did it in different ways. Some were second career nurses, some went to, you know, a nursing school for two years right out of high school. Um, and when you're working those 12 hour shifts with people, you just get to learn something about them. So you really get to understand who people are in that and then how that shows up at work. So that one, I mean, that's a key one just because they're really impressive women and to see where everyone has gone on to in their career is just, I don't know, it's inspiring. It's motivating. Um, I love it. The other one I would say clinically. So when I was a home care nurse, I did home health nursing in Baltimore city. And so it was, um, and the way you describe it, it's not Baltimore city, like where you go to the Orioles game or to the Ravens game, it's where people <laughs> actually live. Yeah. Um, and that's not always great. And so no. the, the warmth of people that invite you into their home and who are like, they, they invite them into their home or their family. And oftentimes it's multi-generational. There are days you show up where the power has been turned off. There are people who, if I tried to teach them about their diabetes, they could teach everything back to me. And that is not the reason they can't take care of their diabetes. It's everything else in their life. And so I think getting to see how people actually live, not just how they showed up in the ER or how they showed up and up on the floor is just really eye-opening. And mm -hmm. you know, we're all probably more sheltered than we realize we are. So we probably couldn't even envision everything that you would see when you're a home health nurse. So I think that just, honestly, it gave me a bit of humility in terms of my nursing. And it also broadened my horizons into what, um, what patients were really experiencing. And the other thing is, you know, some of these people, they're older, they're lonely. You would come in for maybe a 30 minute visit and they would sit you down and you would hear this life story um, around like what their career was, if they had one, their family, how they ended up in that neighborhood. Sometimes that home was a time capsule when you walked inside. Oh, and so yeah. again, you just get to know these patients on their own level and their own home. And it's so much different than any relationship you form, like when they're under your care, you know, on, on their own ground. So that's the one where I say I would go back to home health nursing if I ever was a direct care nurse again, um, because it was the most rewarding. And it's the thing that taught me the most about being a nurse too, and how to be effective with people. Yeah, it absolutely is. I miss it. Like just hearing you reminisce. Um, I've had so many similar experiences. And I also think 
in terms of balancing out my career, maybe after all of those years of the ER and the ICU, having the other side of it, being in the home, um, and, and to your point, seeing what, what patients are up against. I will never forget this one visit I did. This man had just been discharged the day before, and he had a below-the-knee amputation that was from complications from his uncontrolled diabetes and they um you know i knock on the door and oh come in so i go in they're in the kitchen he and his wife and he's in the wheelchair obviously and he's sitting at the stove making ramen noodles packaged ramen noodles for his his dinner and that was the first time you had spoken before about like sort of when you knew it was time for you to move on from the ER, when you started to mm -hmm. see some things bubbling up for you that you're like, hmm, that's not really me. Um, mine was that I stopped giving people a chance. Um, so in mentally, you know, nothing ever mm -hmm. came out or anything, nothing ever actually happened. But mentally, I was already thinking, oh, you just want pain meds or, oh, you mm -hmm. just can't take care of your diabetes because you just, you know, got to have that soda or whatever it may be. I was having this internal dialogue and, um, and it was just not good. And flat, flash forward all those years later to that experience in someone's kitchen. And I realized mm -hmm. he doesn't, no one wants to lose part of their leg there's clearly a disconnect here between someone realizing like what, what is actually happening mm -hmm. here. And I felt this profound sense of guilt and sadness and frustration at our, the state of health in this country. And, and the fact that uh, people are just essentially preyed upon, right? That's, mm -hmm. and, and there's a lack of resources as well. So it, and one visit with me in this man's home wasn't going to connect those dots yeah. um, either. And so, yeah, it's just sad. And there's so much work to be done. I think that's what I do with my sadness and my anger and, and all of those more negative emotions is that I try to think, okay, what am I going to do with this uh, throughout my career? Mm -hmm. and, and that's what keeps me moving forward. And that's what brings me to my last question for you. What does the future look like for you? You've you've done so many things, and um, I think many nurses listening to this are going to look at your life and be like, "Oh my gosh, that is the life that I want for myself." And so, I'm curious what your aspirations and vision for the future of your career are. Yeah, um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to reach a point in my career where. I don't really want to go any higher. Like, there, you know, much of your career, you're ambitious, you're driven, you want to climb the ladder. And I've been lucky to get to the point where it's not that I want to climb higher. I just want to be better at what I do. So whether it's my day job, you know, if it's better at leading people, it's better at delivering on results or um, leading change and innovation, that's what I'd like to do. I think I would love to do my coaching job full time, like that be my job job. On the other hand, I also know I'm the provider for two children. And so mm -hmm. there is there is a wonderful thing in stability at the same time. So those are yeah. choices you have to make. And you know, we'll see how that goes. But yeah, I've been very lucky to reach that point where it's and I've sent this on my on my annual review last year too. I said, you know, I don't I don't want your job, boss. I don't want your boss's job. I just want to be good at what I do and just continue to get more exposure and figure that out. Um, and when you do that. I mean, you should obviously climb the ladder and be ambitious. Everyone should, if that's what they want. But when you do take that moment to focus on, okay, just getting better, you do start to see, like you have much more self-awareness and you find areas that are really valuable and satisfying to work on. Mm -hmm. I will say also, you know, I don't know if I'd ever go back to direct care. I had a SVP one time who was a nurse. She was the epitome of corporate. She was perfectly, you know, presented, which... I can do that when I want to be. Um, and, you know, it, but she was perfect at work. She said all the right things. I mean, she was so impressive. And then you saw her in her personal life and she was just like this. I mean, casual, friendly, yeah. fun to talk to. And then the thing she said that always amazed me, she's like, I'm going to end my career at the bedside. And she was, a, she loved being a bedside nurse wow. where she started. And she's like, I will feel complete and full circle 
if I end my career, you know, that last year or so at the bedside, taking care of patients. And I was just so impressed that this woman had so many different facets and she was perfect at all of them. She probably didn't feel she was, but she was. And I thought that's, I don't know, that's just always impressive. that There are nurses out there who are going to climb so high and yet they still remember like where they came from and what's really going to make a difference in individuals too. So I don't know if I could be her, but I do think that's, that's pretty amazing to me. Yeah. I love that. That gives me chills. Um, So how can people reach you? Uh, Are you on Instagram? Mm -hmm. I know you're obviously on LinkedIn and you have a website. So Mm -hmm. if you want to share that information. Sure. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Erica Bentley. Um, You'll see my picture there. I have a website, ericabentleycoaching.com. So um, that one's easy to find. So you can find about the programs and services we offer, some of the testimonials and results. You can sign up for a program if you want. On LinkedIn is where you'll see the most activity. I post helpful information about the industry, um, truly just healthcare information, helpful information about nursing careers. You can see videos from me just like this. Um, I'm on Instagram yeah, Instagram and Facebook and so on, but LinkedIn's where you'll probably find the most. If you want to see pictures of my kids and dogs alongside <laughs> the nursing stuff, then you can go to Instagram for that. So yeah, but I would love to connect with more people on LinkedIn. Um, I just made some really great relationships with people I've ever never actually seen in person. Um, and like us, just, I was going to actually yes. say when you were talking about yeah. reaching out and not being afraid to network, I actually wanted to share mm-hmm. with the listeners that that's how we met. Yeah. You uh, reached out to me. I don't know mm-hmm. who friended who. Um, we have some yeah. overlap in terms of organizations that we've mm-hmm. worked for and connections and just a natural mm-hmm. um relationship developed. And so I think this is a testament to that as well. It is. I would love to hear other people's stories and I'm always willing to give advice or some tips or some insights on their career too, all the time. So yeah, love to connect with people on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Erica. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ashley. This is great. Yeah. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, you too. All right. Bye-bye.